working on this, so I didn't want that. So it's kind of nice to not have tripped. Thanks, guys, for helping me out, getting up the back and all that stuff, trying to be, give you guys a funny video to watch. Everyone likes a funny fail story, don't they? Oh, don't act like you don't. We all do, right? So it was back in 1985. Uh, might have shared this story before, but 1985, I played college football at Central Washington. And when you play college football in a school that at that point didn't offer college scholarships for football, uh, I was on a music scholarship, but then also they gave, uh, the, <laughs> they gave football players these jobs, right? Okay, now jobs ne- weren't necessarily like, job is loose. L- like I got, I got a job uh, putting, working at a skeet shooting range, putting clay pigeons on the little arm that, got, that they throw out there, right? And they paid me way too much money to do that, right? So when you're a college football player and they're trying to give you money, they have to give you a job, wink, wink. Well, the other job they gave me was sing the national anthem at the basketball games, right? So piece of cake. I do that, my eyes closed. I was like, are you kidding me? That's the job? And they're like, yeah, man, it's your job, right? So, so I went out there and I thought, all right, okay, I'll do this. And, you know, my 18-year-old self, with all of my confidence and sweet humility, decided that I didn't need to pray, didn't need to ask Jesus for help. I was just going to go do it because, come on, it's just national anthem, right? So I get up there and I, all, the, all the basketball players, it was like the year after Central had won the national championship. So all the basketball players are standing up, their hands behind their backs, honoring the flag. And then I'm behind them. I, I say to the, 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 the band conductor, don't need your help doing this one a cappella. In other words, no music, just Lance, right? So he's like, are, are you sure? I mean, there's like, I want to say 7,000 people, something like a lot of people, packed out gym. So I get up there, and I'm like, oh, say, can you? I go the whole thing, right? Doing my, doing my bit, feeling like a rock star. Everyone's like, huh. I see all the basketball players kind of looking around a little bit like, it's not so bad. Right? I'm telling you, right? I get three quarters of the way through the song, nothing. I got no words. I forgot the words to the national anthem. The, the house was dead quiet. And I see literally almost every basketball player go, <laughs> they all turn around, look at me. And then I hear this one lone voice in the crowd, and the rocket's red glare. <laughs> yeah? Fail, right? <laughs> yeah, I went home, and it was funny. Or my, so at the time, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, I remember looking into the stands while I forgot the words, hoping someone like her could help me. And, and, and I see her ducking. <laughs> and I'm like, if this is a picture of our marriage to come. Right? She's just ducking. <laughs> yeah, thanks, honey. But we did it. Big fail. Right? Everyone has a fail story somewhere, right? Come on, y'all got one, right? And, and they're a little embarrassing and all that stuff. I think fail stories are ways that God just allows us to get a little humble. Right? I, I, think they, I think those are times for us to be able to sit back and say, like, God, you know what? You know what you're doing, and I clearly don't. You know, and, and we trip and fall and make a big deal out of stuff, but it's kind of amazing to see how God can really redeem us in the middle of those fail moments, right? I, I wrote down a couple of different types of fails. I don't know if you realize that there are, are types of fails. Listen to this. I think there's three kinds of fails. One's called a situational fail. A situational kind of fail is the kind of fail that happens that you can't help. You know, when the sidewalk jumps up and trips you, right? Or, or when you're in line running late for your plane, and then they say, hey, we need to stop and check your bag, right? Come on, whatever happened to you? Like a situational fail. You're like, I can't, I can't help this, but no, not now. And now you look even more guilty. <laughs> so, 
So you got to do that, right? I think there's a situational fail. Then another two kind of fail is a, is a dumb fail, right? Those are the kind that, uh, that, that you, you kind of just, well, you should be able to prevent, but you don't, right? Like when, you're, when, you have, when you have the directions downloaded onto your phone to the place you're supposed to go, and because you're, well, male, and you decide, I don't need that thing, and you drive 25 minutes off course, and you listen to the thing so far as you're like, she has no idea what's going on. I know where I'm going to your phone. Don't act like you haven't done that. And you ignore it and you get 25 minutes out of the wrong way, right? right. Or, or the kind of fail that's a dumb fail, one of those ones where, where you decide it's a good idea to stay up and binge watch that season of that show, right? Isn't it funny how in the middle of binge watching some season on Hulu or whatever it is you're watching, YouTube or whatever you got, you get that moment, Netflix, and you say, you say to yourself, you start to justify your next day. Right? You start to say to yourself things like, well, I was going to get up and read my Bible, but uh, I'll read it in the afternoon. Because, you know, you're going to stay up and watch one more show. Right? Or, you, or you say to yourself, well, I'll watch one more show. And so you start to whittle away at your morning. Right? Well, I was going to work out, but you know, I'll t- I'm, I'm going to take tomorrow off. Right? And then you start to say, well, I'll watch one more show. And next thing you know, you're like, I don't need a shower. I, I guess I'll just not take a shower. Right? And then you get to three or four in the morning and you're like, you know what? I'll just take a nap tomorrow. That's a good idea, right? I won't sleep at all. Anybody? Fail, right? (laughs) You find yourself walking around like a a not very spiritually fed, stinky zombie the next day, right? Fail. That happens to so many. I think there's a third kind of fail. It's the kind of fail that all of us experience, and we wish we didn't. It's the kind of fail that every one of us has to go through. Every one of us gets a taste of it. It's a fail that I call sin. It's the failure that reminds us that this world we live in is broken. It's a failure that often is rooted in rebellion against God. It's a failure that happens because we don't want to trust Him. We want to trust ourselves. Two weeks from now, we uh, are going to be celebrating Easter. I love it. Easter is one of my favorite holidays. I think every holiday is my favorite holiday. <laughs> I think Thanksgiving is my favorite, but Easter is a close second. Easter is one of those holidays where it's just that moment where we just get to sit back and see what God did. I love the message of Easter. I don't know where this definition came from. A bunch of years ago I heard it, and I've, it's, I stuck with it. So don't try Googling it. It's probably not. <laughs> but I'm sticking with the definition. The word Easter, I think, means hope prevails over despair. What a great message, right? Where the enemy said, hey, look, I'm going I'm to convince these people in the Garden of Eden to mess up. But Jesus came in and said, no, I'm going to pay the price and the penalty for their sin. I'm going to come in and make right their fail. I want to talk to you this morning about the biggest fail of all time. Will you join me as we pray? God, thank you for this morning. Thanks for your word. Thank you that we can come before you and experience your grace. Thank you that we can come before you that in the middle of our fails, You're still big. We love you, God. In Jesus' name. Before I go on any further, can I just tell you that maybe you're here today, and there seems to be some sort of a voice talking to you this morning, saying to you, I'm just going to speak to the one or two people who are in your field this way, that God somehow brought you here today to expose your failure. 
That somehow God brought you here today to remind you that you're nothing but a failure or that decision you made to do that thing is going to mark you and somehow this whole thing is all about you. Can I tell you, it's not true. Every one of us fails. Every one of us is guilty. If you're here this morning and you feel like that is a big tattoo that's across your forehead, can I tell you you're, well, you're normal and you're safe here. And God's grace can cover and protect and heal you. Now somebody say, please, amen. 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 That's good. I want to talk to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Genesis. Genesis. The greatest fail of all time. I think it took place in the book of Genesis. When I read the book of Genesis, I see so much of the failure of mankind. So much of the decisions that they made in, in all of Genesis, but the very beginning, I want to talk to you, uh, Genesis literally chapter, <laughs> chapters 1, 2, and 3. We're not going to spend a lot of time in each of those passages, but in its whole point, it's really about the creation of the world and the, the, the beginnings of mankind, and where man hung a left and veered off course. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 says this, it says, this is the account of creation of the, heavens of, the, of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord made the heavens and the earth, there were no plants or grain growing on the earth, for the Lord had not yet sent any, grain, any rain. No one was there to cultivate the soil. But water came up from the ground and watered all of the land. And the Lord God formed man's body from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. The man became a living person. I love this. The, the Bible goes on and on to say in that little moment. When you read the book of Genesis, oftentimes you'll see this big picture thing. God created everything, and then it'll break it up in the next chapter and say, here's how he created everything. And then it'll say, it was amazing, this big holistic picture, and then a breaking down moment of all this stuff. So don't feel like you're losing your mind if you're reading in Genesis chapter 3 and bump over to chapter 6 and feel like, didn't he already say that? It's because sometimes I feel like the writer, in my opinion, I think this was Moses, as he's writing this, I feel like there's this picture of, of him saying, God did this amazing thing, and then let me show you how. And then he goes back and breaks it down and gives us the points. Literally, this writer of, of Genesis was saying, God made good stuff. God made really good stuff. It's interesting, in verse 5 it says that there was no one yet to work or cultivate the soil. Do you realize that God made man, and before sin happened, he made man to cultivate the soil. Translation, did you know God made you to work? He gave you a gift to work. Work isn't to sin. Work isn't uh, the, the toil of our brow, the way that it is to have to earn a living for your family. The, the, the hardness of it, all that stuff is the result of sin. But the fact that God made you to be creative and to be working and to, and to enjoy, subdue, and grow in the giftings that God has given you, that those were a perfect gift from God. Like, it's okay. He wants you to be excited about what you're doing. Where it gets messed up is when it gets out of balance. And we think that our jobs are what's supposed to define us. Right? Verse 8, the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he placed the man that he had created. The Lord God planted all sorts of trees in the garden. Beautiful trees that produced delicious fruit. At the center of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go down to verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend for it and to care for it. But the Lord God gave him this warning. You may freely eat from any fruit in the garden, except from the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you will surely die. It's interesting, at this time, there was no fails. At this time, there, there was nothing going on. Listen to this. At this time, man had work to keep him busy and creative. At this time, man had the garden to provide for him and to feed him. At this time, man had his God for worship and for fellowship. There was no fail in sight. Right now, there was an amazing moment happening between, between man and God, and it was an amazing moment. Then in chapter 2, everyone say then. Then chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Then God made woman. Just kidding. It does say that. Women are not a fail. <laughs> that was more funny in my head. Let me tell you this. <laughs> I was laughing. I was writing this like, oh, I think God made women. I know women. Listen, when he talks about man, he's talking about mankind, right? Truly. But God made woman. The Bible says, by the way, God took woman out of man. Out of man. Woman. That's what literally it means. I love the fact that he, he made us in marriage. We actually get to be joined back together. I love the picture that God made of man and wife and what they're supposed to be about. So there's no fail in humanity at all that way. Listen, here's where the fail came about. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the creatures that the Lord God had made. Really, he asked the woman, did God say that, we, that you must not eat any of the fruit in the garden? Of course we may eat it, the woman told him. It's only the fruit in the tree at the center of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God says that we must not eat it or even touch it or we will die. It's interesting. I think the biggest fail in mankind is the fact that we listen to the voice of the enemy over the voice of God. It has nothing to do with male or female. Quite frankly, whether it was Adam and Eve or Jim and Jill or Lance and Polly, it doesn't matter because if we were back there in the Garden of Eden, we would have been just as tempted and probably just as willing to listen to the voice of the enemy. You might ask yourself, why in the world did God put that blasted tree there anyway? Come on, right? You know why, right? There's a whole lot more theology to that, but in a nutshell, the reason that God put the tree there was to really let you be reminded that love is a free will. Love is a choice. You get to choose to love God or not choose God. You, you get to do that. That's the beauty of this walk with God. You don't have to go to heaven if you don't want to. You don't have to have a relationship with the king of the universe who created everything. You can have a relationship with the deceiver who will lie. That's the beauty in this whole thing. It's amazing to me that he starts this conversation out with woman, the enemy, by talking about the negativity of what he sees in God. First thing the enemy says to her is this, really, 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 God said you can't have anything here, right? Isn't it, isn't, it, isn't it bug you how the fact that the enemy just comes in and automatically starts twisting? Really? God says you can't have any of the fruit here. Hmm. It's interesting because God didn't say that at all. He didn't say anything at all. I think too many of us are, are, are wrapped into this idea that, that we will immediately listen to the voice of God over the voice of the enemy. It's just too easy. Our sin nature cries out and says, whatever he said is true. I'm worthless. I'll never amount to anything. I'm always going to be the dumbest guy in the room, and, and I'll always be a failure. Man, we're so quick to listen to the enemy's accusation instead of what it is that God says about us. 
When God says, you're my child, the enemy says, you don't belong. God says in John 1, 12, but all who believe in him and are accepted in him, he gave the right to become the children of God. The enemy says, you don't belong. When God says you're vindicated in Romans chapter 3, 24, yet now God in his gracious kindness declares you not guilty. What does the enemy say? He doesn't say you're vindicated. He says you are guilty. When God says you're forgiven, 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. But if we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from every wrong. When God says we're forgiven, the enemy says we're condemned. It's just amazing to me how quickly the king of the universe can tell you how accepted, how forgiven, how, how, how right you are in Jesus and how quick we are to say not true at all. You ever wonder why the devil messes with us so much? Why does the devil mess with us so much? I mean, is it that the devil hates you so bad that he just has this out for you? Can I just let you in behind the curtain a little bit? You know why the devil hates you and I so much? Because, because he can't get at God. He, he can't get at God. So what he's got is, well, I'll mess with those people who God created in his very image. See, you're a living, breathing, physical picture of God to the planet. And here's what the devil would like to do. Just reach his little knife inside of you and twist it just enough to make you feel off your game. Just enough to say, I guess, I, I guess I'm not good enough. I guess I won't make it. I guess I don't deserve him. I guess I don't deserve her. I guess, I, I guess I'm a failure. See, the devil just wants to come in and, and really the devil's ploy is to mess with you so badly but convince you it's all your idea. Hmm. Let me give you a couple of tactics that the enemy leads in each of our lives to lead us to epic fails. One of the first things the enemy does to get us to big epic fail moments is to get our focus off of the bounty and onto the boundary. One of the things the enemy wants to do is, get us, is to get us focusing on the boundary instead of the bounty. He wants to get us focusing on the things that we, we, we are limited to or limited by and, and not focusing on the wonderful things that we're given to, all the great blessings we have in store. He wants us to get involved and get our vision clouded with what it is that we can't do. It's the picture of the, the sheep who standing in green pastures with grass growing up around his legs, stretching his neck through the fence line to the one blade of grass on the other side of the fence where there's nothing but dirt and one blade sticking up. To me, that's such a picture of our humanity. We're standing in such blessing, blessing and lush provision and we're straining our necks just out to just get that one thing that doesn't belong to us. The devil wants us to get us focused on the boundary instead of the bounty. Genesis 3.1. Did God really say that you must not eat any of the fruit of the garden? You know, it's interesting because God actually told them, literally, you can eat of every tree, every tree, every shrub, every root, every berry, every seed, every animal, every anything. It's all yours. It's just everything. Millions and billions and trillions of trees and plants and shrubs and everything. You can have them all. Except one. And all literally the enemy did was one. You can have everything else except that one. 
And yet we read the Garden of Eden story. We read this Adam and Eve narrative and we're like, wow, it's really a choice between this tree and that tree. I don't know what. Can I tell you this? They were surrounded with amazing. It's amazing how the devil can cloud our eyes into saying what we don't have is good enough. It's amazing how quickly he can tell you that your spouse isn't the right one. It's amazing how quickly he can tell you it's time to quit this church. It's time to move on to that job. It's time to decide that your your, your this is not enough and you haven't done this. And whatever it is, man, the devil just wants to convince you not to be content where you are. Can I tell you this? Contentment, first of all, the Bible says contentment with godliness is of great value, correct? But can I tell you this? Contentment is a fight. Contentment is a battle. Contentment is is not resting on your laurels. Contentment is a fight to say, I will choose to say, I will choose to stay in this marriage. I will choose to work through my relationship issues at church. I will choose to stay focused on the budget that God gave me to stay so I can honor my spouse. Whatever it is, I could choose to honor my parents over and over again. So the enemy wants us to get our focus somewhere else, doesn't he? Hmm. We're so quick to see what God is wanting to keep us from instead of what God is leading us to. Tactic number two of the enemy. Tactic number two that leads us to epic fail. He encourages us to a life of overdrive. Everyone say overdrive. Overdrive, right? That's, that's literally drive and then some. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, listen, if the devil can't get you trapped in sin, listen to this very carefully. If the devil can't get you steeped and trapped in sin, here's what he's going to do. He's going to get you steeped and trapped into perfection. If he can't get you to to, to mess up, he's going to get you to do something good overboard. (laughs) Uh, Here's an example. Uh, You you know, uh, clearly I have a problem with some of the stuff. I got to figure it out. Eating, right? Uh, Eating right is good. Working out is great. And once this foot gets better, I'm back on it. But I can tell you this, all that stuff is good. Amen. The problem is, is some of us get over bounds and we start to say, well, if one day of workout's good, if one meal is good, then two are better and three are better and five are better and six are better. And every 24 hours a day is really good. And you should always be, everything that comes out of your mouth becomes this thing of being, and it becomes awkward. No one's saying amen. <laughs> we start ourselves down this road. If God can't throw you off course by doing something sinful, he's going to throw you off course by trying to stay in lines. And you become this awkward perfectionist that wants to do everything by the rules and no one wants to be around you. I'm oftentimes, I think about parenting right now, but we have three babies that are not babies. They're grown up. They're mar- two of them are married and the other one is uh, dating a fella. Uh, he's a good guy. Uh, but I can tell you this. In the process of when they were little, I remember thinking how parenting was so important. I mean, our job was to make sure that they were fed, they were protected, that they were secure, that we got to teach them about Jesus. Come on, it was all that stuff that we're supposed to do as parents. But can I tell you that God never one time told me, and maybe it's just me, but in the Bible that I read, it's probably the same Bible you read. God never told me that my job was to make my kids happy. No, now say amen. Come on. I didn't hear any kids say amen. Right? You know, God never told you to make your kids happy. Told you to help them become holy. See, too many parents get this, this crazy guilt, and they start to say to themselves, well, because I have this job or that job or this relationship, or we're a blended family, and as a result of our blended family, we have to overdo it with our goodies and blessings and gifties and all the things that we do, and it ends up becoming really weird. Can I tell you that 
If you're, let me, and again, this is not the message today, but I just wanted to help you with one thing. If your parenting is so wrapped around making sure your kids are always having life that is fair and equitable to all their friends and all their families and all the people around them, then you, my friend, might be setting your kids up for a massive failure. Can I tell you one of the greatest things a kid can experience is disappointment. Not because you're trying to <laughs> impose it, but because you allow it. Disappointment. I remember I had a, uh, they don't go to this church, but I remember a, a, this family that went to a church a long time ago um, that had two kids and their thrust. Once one kid had a birthday, the other kid got gifts. And, and they, they had that because it was, it, was, it was uncomfortable for the parents to give one kid gifts and to celebrate one kid and to make a big deal about one kid while the other one sat there with their, their lips sticking out. And I remember pulling them aside saying, it's okay. It's okay that you celebrate that one. It's okay that that one feels like a rock star that day because her days are coming. And he better celebrate her too. Why? Because that's life. It's life, disappointment, those kinds of of realities. And so uh, oftentimes I think what happens was the enemy is he gets us into overdrive, into thinking we must, we have to, we always got to be. And you know what happens to parents or people who, who, who aren't steeped in sin but find themselves radically spinning in circles and getting into overdrive? You know, you know what happens? You just get tired. You get exhausted. Then eventually you give up on God and you're like, God, I can't keep this up. And I feel like God just whispers to you, I didn't ask you to. We start thinking, I got to do all these things. I got to make sure he always has this and she always has that. And they never go without him. They always do this because I didn't have, so they must have and I didn't get, but they must be. And we go crazy about this whole thing. Can I tell you this? It's okay. As Aaron Rodgers said last year, relax. It's okay that you're, that you're not doing it all perfect. You know what the Bible says? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. You know what the Bible doesn't say? Be the best. It says do your best. Do your best to love them and care for them and protect them and make sure they're supposed to be okay. If by all means, just like we talked about Chris and Natalie bringing their baby up here today, set them in the life of people who know Jesus better than you do. I can tell you that's what's changed my life, not because I had a greatest upbringing. What's changed my life is God put people in my family that knew Jesus better than, than me or my parents did. And I got to see how to walk this journey out. The enemy wants to encourage us into overdrive. It says in chapter 3, verse 2, of course you may eat it. The woman told him. It's only the fruit at the center of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. It's amazing to me how the enemy can throw us off our game so quickly and try to get us spinning around and around, just chasing our tails, trying somehow to keep up with this crazy, crazy world, thinking that that's the right thing we're supposed to do. Somehow the enemy gets us convinced that if we aren't going to be steeped in sin at some level, then we should be always constantly reading our Bibles, always constantly being super spiritual, always constantly uh, never do anything that's outside the context of this. Can I tell you this? There is a grace that God has for each of us. The devil would want nothing more than to get you spinning faster if he can't get you off the, 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 the rails. And we end up messing it up. You end up convincing people that that's the measure of righteousness. All the good works and the good deeds and the ways that you do it, that's the measure of righteousness. No, it's not. You just might have more energy than that person next to you. The fact that you can flout through three chapters a day and do your thing that you're doing on reading your Bible, yay, amen. Your name is going on the refrigerator of heaven with a gold star. I'm telling you, good for you, right? You get it. I'm trying to say, listen, God's intended plan for us 
is to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved. Amen? Number three, a tactic the enemy uses leads us into epic fails. He convinces us to take our eyes off the prize. He convinces us to take our eyes off the prize. Listen to what it says in chapter 3, verse 6. It says, The woman was convinced. The fruit looked so fresh and delicious. It would make her so wise. So she ate some of the fruit, and she also gave some to her husband that was with her. He ate it too, and at that moment, their eyes were open, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. They strung together fig leaves around their hips to, over, to cover over themselves. You know, I always feel like women get a bad rap here, and as much as I joked around a little bit ago, can I just tell you this? It has nothing to do with Eve or females or anything else. It's mankind, right? It's every one of us. Every one of us is tempted with that same sin that Eve was. It, it, looked, it looked fresh and so delicious. It looked fresh and so delicious. Every one of us is enticed in some area of our life to look across the, the boundary of where we're supposed to stay and say to ourselves in our heart of hearts, that looks so fresh and delicious. I must have it. I must look again. <laughs> I must keep looking. I must keep looking and keep looking and keep looking. And let me tell you this, the longer you look at something that's not yours to have, the more apt you are to trip over yourself into the wrong fence line. Here's a hint. Look once and look away. And look once because your eyes caught it. Now turn away and walk the other direction. We used to, when I was in college, some of my my, my Christian buddies would always talk about how when a pretty girl would walk in front of us or uh, we, we were at Central and so there were days that the sun was super hot and girls just didn't seem to care that the sun was hot and trust me, it's bad. So, so all that to say, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about, right? So I remember all of my Christian buddies would like bounce your eyes. We would talk about bouncing our eyes that we would always say this, the first look at some pretty girl, you could look at them. We, we would always say that the first look you're admiring God's beauty. The second look, you've crossed the line. <laughs> so we gave ourselves the first look. You can look and say, wow, very lovely. Thank you, Jesus. Now look away. <laughs> right? Come on. It's the second look that'll mess you up. Right? Don't <laughs> look at all the men are like, I don't even know when to say amen. <laughs> I can't say amen. <laughs> Listen. The reason it looks so fresh and delicious, I always think it's interesting how like there was such a description of that. It's like this over-the-top description. Not like Eve was just going, wow, the fruit looked good. I mean, the Bible said all the trees were producing amazing fruit, right? But here it says they were so fresh and delicious. And I didn't extrapolate out any or do any studying in the Hebrew here, but I guarantee you that if you did a little, little research in the Hebrew, it would say that it was amazing kind of fruit, right? And I get the picture in my mind's eye. The reason it looked so amazing was because she spent so much time looking at it. And the longer you look at something, the better it looks. Can I tell you this? The enemy wants nothing more than to throw you off your game by looking over the wrong fence line too long. That's when epic fails start to happen. You start listening to his voice because you start to think to yourself, I deserve that. I deserve that car. I deserve that whatever it is you got. I deserve that job. I deserve that raise. I deserve that bonus. I deserve the yes on that loan request. And we start going into this crazy I deserve it mode when we start looking more than once and we start to cross the line and we, because the devil always wants to entice us into places that are not ours to have. 
and epic fails begin to take place. The devil's cunning. It's crafty. It's interesting how that description of the devil, what did it say? The shrewdest of all creation. You know, I always, I always think to myself, you know, when um, Eve was sitting there in the Garden of Eden and the fruit looked fresh and delicious and beautiful and all that business, her husband wasn't far away. What's interesting, too, is, is when I think about Eve in this Garden of Eden story, it's interesting how she didn't tell the devil the truth. The devil said, you're not supposed to eat that, right? Isn't that, or something like that. And she, she, all God said to them was, don't eat that tree, right? Don't eat that tree, a fruit off that tree. What did she say back to the devil? She said, we can't eat it or even touch it. You know what it reminds me? It reminds me of uh, my kids when they were teenagers. And I would tell them, no, you can't go out tonight. And, and here's what they would say to their friends or whatever. Dad won't let me do anything, <laughs> right? You can do a lot of stuff here at home, but I'm not letting you go out, right? You know, can we have that ice cream? No, you can't have ice cream. Dad won't let us have anything, right? It's as if the, literally like Eve turned into this teenager. We can't have it. We can't even touch it. You know? <laughs> We're the same. Again, if it's Adam and Eve or Jim and Susan or Lance and Polly, every one of us is the same. And we start looking over the fence line at something that's not ours, feeling like we deserve it. And somehow we just get mad at God. Can I tell you that what God told them was they could have anything? Can I tell you as believers, God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's given us so much. The problem is, is our emphasis and our focus is on that thing that says, this will destroy you, it will hurt you, it will kill you. Where in your life has God been telling you to run from that thing that doesn't belong to you? And maybe you in your mind's eye, maybe even with your hands and feet, maybe somewhere even in your heart of hearts, you've crossed the line into epic fail. Can we pray right now? Can we just ask God to forgive those moments where we have crossed into failure? Jesus, this morning we come and we thank you for your grace. I mean that with everything I am, God. Thank you for grace, that unmerited, undeserved favor. God, when we don't do the right things and you still love us, thank you for favor. Lord, I pray for my friend today. God, that person who sits in here guilty, filled with shame at their own nakedness. Lord, the one that sits here this morning and feels like the sermon was for me and I, I look like I have a, a spotlight shining on my forehead. God, I pray that your grace would just cover them. And if that's you right now and you feel like that, will you just say to Jesus, forgive me? Just forgive me. I don't want to live under this shame anymore. The beauty of what Jesus did in Easter was to pay the penalty for your sin, literally saying he'll forgive you. Say, Jesus, forgive me for stepping over the boundary. I don't want to be there anymore. Maybe this morning you're trapped. You cross the fence and you feel like you can't get back. Can I tell you that getting back is just simply, a, it's simply the beginning by saying, Jesus, forgive me. Show me the way back. He will. He will. He'll show you the right thing to do. He's pretty good at that. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never had a relationship with him that, that would show you his loving, welcoming arms. If that's you this morning, and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, if not for the very first time, say, Jesus, I give you all of me. I surrender my life. Fill me with your spirit that I wouldn't be walking around in my own shame, but I would be walking around in your goodness. You're so good, God. In Jesus' name.